Doug Scheiding of Row Cookers, baseball fan and barbecue world champion. You are listening to the Baseball and Barbecue Show with Lynn and Jeff. episode 85 of a very special Valentine's Day edition of Baseball and Barbecue. And I do mean a special Valentine's Day. And I am here with my wonderful co-host, Jeff Cohen. And Jeff, I wish you a very happy Valentine's Day. Same to you, Leonard. And do you know why it's so special? Because we have the top top valentine in our uh studio with us and that is none other than bobby v oh yes bobby valentine former manager of the mets rangers red sox he also managed in japan was a great player coming out of the state of connecticut and it was a joy just talking to him and i wish we could have went longer but we were fortunate to just get the half hour we got with him Absolutely. And this is just a special gift for our listeners who will really enjoy it. So to our listeners, we wish you a very happy Valentine's Day to the Pandemic Baseball Book Club members, the authors, the wonderful authors we've had on. We wish you all a happy Valentine's Day and to fifthandcherry.com with their wonderful cutting boards and baseballbbq.com for their grilling tools and accessories. We wish all of you a wonderful Valentine's Day. And, and Leonard, let me take this time to promote a, a friend of ours. He has a new show on the 365 Sportscast Network. His name is Brett Topel. He has a live show every Sunday from 7 to 8. And tonight, if you're listening to this on Valentine's Day, he has Mookie Wilson and Eric Sherman. Wow. Right, and you can be you can catch him at 365sportscast.com. And if you can't hear him live, you can always go to his website, bttalksbaseball.com. Brett Topel puts on a great show, and I encourage everybody to go check it out. He, he's been, he started with BT Talks Baseball, which was very popular on YouTube. And I've heard this show, and it's really great. So definitely suggest that everybody checks this show out. And now, Jeff, how can our listeners get in touch with us to wish us a very happy Valentine's Day? Well, I don't know. There's only a couple of ways. You can email us at baseballandbbq at gmail.com. You can call us, 516-855-8214. We have a Twitter. Our Twitter address is at baseballandbbq. Facebook. We also have a Facebook, so baseballandbbq. 
They have an Instagram. Instagram is baseball at barbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. We have a YouTube page, Baseball BBQ, and our website is www.baseballatbbq.weebly.com. And please rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you have to say. And wish us a happy Valentine's Day. And with that, here's Bobby V, Bobby Valentine. Our guest today has been in all aspects of Major League Baseball. As a player, he played for the Dodgers, Angels, Padres, Mets, and Mariners. He coached for the Texas Rangers and the New York Mets. He managed the Texas Rangers, New York Mets, Boston Red Sox, and the Chiba Lope Marines of the Nippon Professional Baseball League. He was also a broadcaster for ESPN, elected to the Connecticut Coaches Hall of Fame, one of the best athletes ever to come from the state of Connecticut. You know him, you love him. He is Bobby Valentine. We call him Bobby V. Welcome, Bobby. Uh, good to be with you guys. Thank you. Yeah, I don't think I ever coached for the Rangers, but that's all right. There's resumes out there, you know, and, and who cares? But I did manage the Rangers. Matter of fact, you know what I did? I, I managed uh, seven years in Texas, seven years in New York, seven years in Japan, and seven months in Boston. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we could take it from there, guys. Well, yeah. well, with the Rangers, Bobby, not many people could lay claim to fame that a, f- that a future president fired them. I mean, that, if you got to be let go by somebody not bad yeah absolutely you know that those days with george w bush where he's the managing general partner for the texas rangers when i was the manager i was already the manager when he and his group took over the team and he spent every day in my office with his feet up on my desk before i got there he he and he dove into baseball like you know a a young child dives into his birthday cake you know wanted to get it all and all at once he was a terrific guy to work for a terrific guy to work with you know he did well he told me i was going to be fired and i guess did the execution but it it was a, a mutual admiration society for the years that we were together wow that's amazing Bobby, I saw you at Queens Baseball Convention a few years ago, and it was you were so entertaining. I learned a lot about you. Growing up in Connecticut, you had the opportunities because your high school, your junior high school closed down. You were a younger one in high school, and a particular person who was a, a couple years older than you. I don't know if discovered you, but took you to the Cape Cod League, and that person is in the Hall of Fame, but the Hockey Hall of Fame. Lou Amarillo, could you tell us about that? Yeah, that's really radical, isn't it? Yeah, I, as a young guy, I was always lucky. I was able to play with the older kids, you know, growing up, so I got better. And then, you know, I got to be the first 13-year-old on the Babe Ruth League All-Star team. And I was the freshman in high school in 1964 because they closed my junior high school and the ninth graders went to high school from that junior high. The seventh and eighth graders were spread out amongst the other junior high schools. And because of that, I got to play varsity baseball when I was a freshman, huh? And I learned the varsity football plays when I was a freshman. So first game as a football player, I started as a sophomore, which was unheard of because in September, no one knew the plays because you just got to school as a sophomore. I scored four touchdowns in my first game, went on to be the only three-time All-State football player. And because I played freshman baseball and I was the all-county 
baseball shortstop as a freshman, which was unheard of because freshmen weren't playing baseball in high school. By the time I was ju- a junior, I was kind of known around the area, you know, and and there was a assistant basketball coach up at Providence College named Billy O'Connor, who was from Stanford, Connecticut, who was about to marry Andy Robustelli's the the, the greatest athlete from Stanford, Connecticut's daughter. And he took the assistant hockey coach and assistant baseball coach, it was one person, to dinner at his house in Stanford, Connecticut, and talked him into staying over for an extra night so he could watch a baseball game. This guy was 24 years old at the time. Uh, he had just gotten through playing his summer baseball league in the Cam Am League after he played baseball in college and in the, in the Cape Cod League. And uh, he was going to manage for the first time in, in Cape Cod in South Yarmouth. And he came to this high school game. I had one of those games, you know, where I hit it real far. I ran around the bases. I made catches and throws. And after the game, he said, hey, why don't you come to Cape Cod with me and play center field? He said, Cape Cod, where's that? <laughs> you know? I mean, my gosh, are you serious? And yeah, the guy was Lou Lamorello. He was a great baseball coach. He loves baseball and he's still a friend today after 54 years. It's pretty incredible. And he rebuilt the New York Islanders. So yeah, he's he's great with the Devils, went to Toronto, and now he's back with the Islanders. Yes, that's an amazing story. You were some athlete, so uh, you were a great football player. And so did you ever, you know, you went baseball, but was there ever a possibility that you may have gone with football. Well, you know, in, in 1968, when I was a senior in high school, I set, signed a letter of intent to go to the University of Southern California and play football. Uh, I was supposedly going to take O.J. Simpson's place, but I'm sure their coach, John McKay, when recruiting everyone, including me, told them that they were going to replace O.J. Simpson in the backfield. But I accepted that scholarship, signed the letter of intent, I had all intentions of playing football in college along with baseball. I was going to try to be one of those two-sport dudes. And then I was drafted about two weeks after I signed the letter of intent. And uh, within a day and a half, Andy Robustelli and Al Campanis, Andy Robustelli representing me, he was a few years away from getting to the uh, Football Hall of Fame with the New York Giants. And he's from my hometown, so he negotiated with Al Campanis, who was the first-year general manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, where I was drafted in the first round. And I signed the letter to go and play baseball. So at that time, if you signed to be a professional, you were a professional in all sports. And you couldn't play a college sport and then in the other season play a professional sport. And do you guys know who it is that changed that rule that allowed you to be a professional only in one sport and you could still play collegiate athletics? No. Who no was idea. that? <laughs> no, no idea. It happened in your lifetime and you still got, you guys probably talk about him on your podcast. Tom Seaver? No, he is a basketball person that you would talk about often when he played and now he's not playing anymore but he's in a front office he was the number one draft choice of the toronto blue jays and he played in the big leagues oh danny ainge 
Danny Ainge. Danny Ainge, right. Yeah. And so after his mission and after signing, going through the minor leagues and getting to the big leagues with the Blue Jays, he contested that rule, got it to the Supreme Court, won the case, and went back to BYU and played basketball. Wow. Very interesting, huh? Absolutely. Right in your lifetime, guys. That yeah, I remember Danny Ainge being a two-sport guy. Yeah, sure. In lifetime, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So. Bobby, uh, I want to ask you about your father-in-law, who, who people don't know, was Ralph Branco, and he played with Jackie Robinson. Have he ever told you any stories of how it was back then? Oh, of course, for years and years and years. You know, that, that was an amazing era, and yeah, Ralph was a teammate of his in 1947. Ralph was a, a college guy. He loved Jackie right from the get-go. You know, he's a kind of an Italian-American Jewish guy who grew up in Mount Vernon, New York, in a very less-than-segregated neighborhood. And so he, he understood the whole thing that wasn't being understood at the time in the entire United States of America. And that was 47, remember? Mm-hmm. Uh, I can tell you that I left Connecticut in 68 and in 69 in spring training. I was taken aback by the fact that I went into a little bar with Willie Davis and Maury Wills, who were both men- members of the Dodgers and were both uh, African-American baseball players. And in this bar, even though I was 19 and I was two years younger than drinking age, the bartender said he would serve me, but he wouldn't serve the two guys that I mm. came in with. Huh? Yeah. So you remember this, this world that you think is just changing for the first time has been trying to change and adjust for a long time. And let me tell you one of the ironies, because you mentioned Jackie Robinson and Ralph Branca in 1947. You know, I was drafted in, in 68 and the general manager of the team was Al Campanis at the time. Yeah. And Al Campanis you know, got on Nightline with Ted Koppel in the late right. 80s and had a couple dreary, crazy things and got fired because he, he basically said that, that mm-hmm. blacks didn't have the skill set uh, right. to become, you know, general right. managers and managers. But the interesting thing about that is and that Al Campanis was the least prejudiced guy that I ever come in, came in contact with. And in 1946, who do you think Jackie's double play combo was? Yep. It was Al Campanis. It was Al Campanis at shortstop. Yeah. So, you know, Ralph would talk about stuff like that, you know, that about justice and things that were not fair other than the racial divide in and somewhat conquering of baseball. So, you know, that's all interesting. Next question. <laughs> well, Bob, Bobby, we are baseball and barbecue, so we have an obsession with food. Most people know you as a player, as a manager, but probably this is going to surprise people. You invented something that people don't know. It's oh, come on. Item. Everyone Everyone, Everyone knows, knows that. Oh, okay. Me? I'm That's what I'm famous for. I'm famous for for creating, or as they say in Wikipedia, inventing the rap right. and uh, wearing a mustache. That's the only thing anybody knows me about, you know? Uh, well, that's not true for us. But tell us, I did read, uh, there was a New York Times article on, on you and, and how you invented the rap. 
actually, I think it was a Wall Street Journal article. Okay. And what happened was the, the reporter, when he read on Wikipedia, which is the people's encyclopedia, of course. you know, and Everything read on how, true. how my, my manager of my restaurant put in there that Bobby in 1981 was the first to have a rap and he created it. Well, you know, the Wall Street Journal was going to prove that wrong and sent out investigative reporters to figure out <laughs> how the hell a guy could put that in his Wikipedia page. You know what I mean? Right. And three months later, they came back and said, voila, I think he actually did. <laughs> uh, so uh, I don't say that I, I was the first that I created it. The Wall Street Journal does. And I always challenge people if they knew and could show a 19 prior to 1981 menu that had a wrap sandwich on it, then I would give away the throne and the title, <laughs> you know, well, but and we're not talking about burritos here. We're not talking about tacos and burritos. Right. we're talking about an American sandwich rolled up in a tortilla right. shell. Yeah. Like we know it as a wrap. I love yes. a wrap. Yeah. Love a wrap. Yeah. I guess obviously you're not getting uh, any royalties on that invention, but Speaking of Wikipedia, if we're going down there, because, of course, I did read Wikipedia. So tell me if this is true or not. Were you a champion ballroom dancer? International champion, actually. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, See, I, that's competed, <laughs> I, I competed for four years of my life with the same partner. Uh, we, you know, we went from doing little local competitions to winning uh, trophies at the Waldorf Astoria and, and Edison Hotel in New York City. We won a regional championship in 64 and went to the international championships at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami, Florida. And we won there. So yeah, I was a, a ballroom dance competitor and champion. Yeah. International, uh, number one international in the rumba and number two international in the all around, you know, the all around dances were dances that you had to do compulsory steps in one part. And mm -hmm. then the freestyle, you make up your own steps and go for it in the, in the freestyle. And it was the greatest competitions that I ever, I ever was in. It taught me about rhythm. It taught me about balance. It taught me, taught me about teamwork. You had to be on time. You wore a tuxedo and she had a big flowing dress. You had numbers pinned to the back of your uh, shirt. The gallery above the Waldorf was all filled with parents and friends who were kind of cheering. And the, the judges walked around, never smiling, taking notes around the floor as you were spinning and kicking and dancing and stepping. So, yeah, it was the coolest thing I ever did. And what it did is, is it taught me at a very young age about balance. OK, and if you watch a running back, the, the great running backs that you watch on TV and most of them are great because they're on TV, understand balance better than the other guy. You know, that's that move when you can kind of take your weight and make it seem like it's going that way. But it really right. goes that way. And the guy stands, you know, with his jock standing there five <laughs> feet away. You know, that's all about balance. Luckily, I had speed to go with balance and I was stronger than most when I was a young guy and that's how I became a number one draft choice yeah that's great I guess there was no money in ballroom dancing otherwise it would be Bobby V we'd be inter interviewing you all about your dance career interesting as that is 
I almost lost my college eligibility because I was going to enter a dance contest where you got paid cash, if you will. Uh, yeah, wow. at the Roseland Casino down in Coney Island. Yeah, wow. so, you know, we were ready to go. We didn't go because my coach was smarter than, you know, anybody else that was in my traveling squad. <laughs> Bobby, let's, let's get back to baseball, managing the Mets. You know, there's three words that still haunt me to today. Is run, team, or run? I was just, I, I still see him not running around the bases. How was that experience in the, the 2000 World Series? I mean, you're going up against an old, uh, your old manager. You, you played for Joe Torre for a little bit when he was uh, managing the Mets. And how was that, you know, going up against him? Well, you know, here's the player manager. And, you know, I got there at the end of my career. Uh, I wasn't there necessarily drive-in runs. I was there to kind of mentor Lee Mazzilli. And, you know, Lee was one of the one of the guys who was overlooked uh, in med history because he was put in an amazing spot. You know, he was a switch hitting Italian. He was in the Italian stallion. He could run faster than everybody on the team. And he switched it and hit home runs from both sides of the plate. He played center field and he was a good looking dude. Huh? Yeah. And. The Mets had nothing on on their teams in 76, 77, 78. You know, 77's the year they traded away Seaver, you know, Ian Kingman, by the way. And, yep. and thank God on the same day Kingman was traded because no one ever remembers who he was traded for. They only remember the guys that Seaver was traded for. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you guys know what I mean. But, yeah. uh, you know, playing for Joe in those days was fun, but he was a player manager for, for half a season and a manager, first year manager to next year. He released me, and, and we had a great friendship for the years that I played because, of course, you know, again, he was Italian. He was from Brooklyn. Maz was Italian. He was from Brooklyn. He was the New York Mets. You know, this was going to be – a, a match made in heaven, the manager and the protege, and and it just didn't come to fruition because they didn't get a good supporting cast for Lee Mazzilli. Lee, Lee was really a good – he caught the ball like Willie Mays in yep. center field. Think of the balls he had. <laughs> he's in the big leagues, and he's catching the ball like Willie Mays in center field. Come on now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. And yeah. I know all but the it, girls had crushes on him. <laughs> it was cool. Oh, and, yeah. then, you know, to, to, to manage against them – you know, 30-something years later and having a friendship all of those years. And, of course, you know, the bigger, more exciting games that we managed against each other were the first interleague games. Those games were ridiculous. The World Series, you know, it was the World Series, and I'll never try to slight it in any way. But I could tell you that the excitement – and the tension and the rivalry in 97 and 98 was in peak form. You know, it was, it was ridiculous. It was the first time that we would, you know, we would dress at Chase Stadium. They would dress at Yankee Stadium. And then we'd have police escorts in our buses and in our uniforms, 
to the game because they didn't think it was safe to park at the opposing parking lot, you know, <laughs> in case you were the visitors and you won, you know, you right. know what I mean? And they stopped the highways. Think about this. The, the, the motorcycle police would give us the S escort and they scoot up in front of us and get to the entrance and block off the entrances to, to the Willis Avenue bridge and to, to 87. And, and, and it was amazing people lined along the streets for those first interleague years. But then the world series of course was, um, was spectacular, but for Joe and I doing it against each other was kind of old hat. And, and he wasn't in the mood to have any fun. You know, that that World Series, they had won 14 World Series games in a row or something like that, right? right? Yep. And then they and then they kind of stepped on their you know what on the in the last two weeks of the season. They couldn't get out of their way when the season ended, and then Seattle took them to the brink in the playoffs. So playing us where we, you know, we swept through St. Louis. Hell, we were sitting around for like four days waiting to figure out who we were going to play. Huh? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's all that, that, that week, that year, I mean, that was all really, really weird stuff. And, and to have the major focus on the guy who, who allowed us to walk through St. Louis because of the series that he had that Timo Perez you know, who was filling in, by the way, for Derek Bell, who was our $5 million right fielder, yeah. who was a no-show, yeah. you know? <laughs> Actually, he got he got hurt. He wasn't uh -huh. a no-show. Right. He was with us. Right. But of course. Yeah, yeah. It, that was an amazing series. That 2000 thing, uh, I can't believe it's 20 years from now. And, you know, I've got about another five minutes. Oh, Okay. Great. Just t tell us, you managed some of the, you played and managed some of the greatest players in the game. Uh, Piazza, Rodriguez, Ricky Henderson. You play, I, I see you played with Frank Robinson, Nolan Ryan, Willie McCovey. And, uh, and you, did you ever play for Tommy Lasorda or could you tell us, I mean, he just passed, recently passed. I know he's kind of a, a, a protege of yours or a friend of yours. Have you ever played uh, with him or on the same team with him? Oh, okay. So yeah, I I played for Tommy in 1968 in rookie ball. He was a rookie league manager when I first signed my first contract, left Stanford, Connecticut, went to Salt Lake City, got off the plane, and he picked me up at the airport, drove me to Ogden, Utah, where we spent two and a half months together. The next year, we we managed me in AAA. The following year, he managed me in AAA. We went to the Dominican Republic together and played winter ball. And we went to Caracas, Venezuela together. And we uh, played winter ball. Of all those times, we had, uh, he had six championships and I had five MVPs in those leagues that we, we were together in. But I got to the big leagues in 1971. And he didn't get there until 73. And by that time, I had created a situation with Walter Alston where one of us was going to have to leave. And I, I was hoping it was him, but it was me instead. So I was traded to the uh, California Angels in 1973. And that's when Tommy got to the big leagues. So mm -hmm. we were never in, in a uniform together in the major leagues until I managed the 2001 All-Star Game, and Tommy had been retired for three years, and I 
got permission from the commissioner to put him in uniform and be an additional coach on my all-star team in uh, 2001. And that's the highlight film that you see Tommy doing the back roll while coaching <laughs> third base when, when Vladimir Guerrero swung at a low and away pitch and let go of the bat and it went flying through the year air right at Tommy's uh, forehead. <laughs> Luckily he had the dexterity to get out of the way. Yes. Know? Bobby, Bobby we, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you one more one more quick question. Okay. I gotta tell you though, we're not asking you, but I Obviously, everybody loves the story uh, where you say, you know, said to the umpire, can I get kicked out for what I'm thinking? And he said no and told them what I was thinking. But we're not going to ask you that because <laughs> you probably have said that so many times. But I said that a few times. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> but what I am going to say is you, a fantastic athlete growing up, Stanford, Connecticut, if you hadn't been injured and you had played Injuries are part of the game, but if you hadn't and you played to your potential, who knows? You may have been, you could have been a Hall of Fame ball player. Do you think that you still would have ended up as a manager? Wow, that's an interesting question. Probably not. You know, when when I went back to the Dominican in 1976 with Tommy Lasorda, it was after I broke my leg. And the, he hadn't really seen me up close and personal since I was the MVP at AAA uh, six years before with him. He saw me here and there uh, in the with the freeway series that we would have where the American League uh, local team would play the National League local team, uh, the California Angels against the L.A. Dodgers in a preseason you know, end of spring training matchup. That's the only time he got to see me play. So after seeing me play for two months down in winter ball with a crooked leg, we went out to dinner and had the heart-to-heart conversation. Hey, Tommy, these guys are really screwing me, right? As soon as I get a chance, I'm going to be the player that I always was, right? Isn't that right, Tommy? And, you know, with a tear in his eye, he said, no, that's not right, but I think you should start thinking about being a coach. And so, you know, that I was – on the fast track then to managing. I was a 27-year-old in, in AAA, and the guy got sick and, and turned the team over to me to manage. You know, I was a 31-year-old third base coach for the New York Mets and a 35-year-old manager, uh, you know, with the Texas Rangers in 1985. So probably I would have been, still been playing at 35 or 36, as all of my peers, you know, were. You know, I was in, I mentioned that 1968 draft. Look it up sometime, guys. When, you know, with the new stats and everything that come out, if you deal with war and war alone and deal with the draft night of 1968, you'll see that we had probably a hundred more points at war than any other draft in the history of major league draft just taking the major league games that the guys played from that draft Mm -hmm. and calculating their war you know and and that's without me me playing about 13 years where i would have added a little plus to them because you know i mean i knew my peers were very good players and my play, my peers had very good careers and I wouldn't uh, necessarily think I would have done anything better, but I sure in heck would have 
would not have done anything worse than the guys that uh, I played with for the whatever first five years of my career. Bobby, we, we can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. Appreciate you coming on. Best of luck to you. Be well, and we'll see you around. Thank okay, you much, have some barbecue. Well, yeah, it's lunchtime. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. That's a Valentine's Day present. <laughs> it really is. You don't have to be a Met fan or a Red Sox fan. Well, I don't think Red Sox fans. <laughs> as, as he likes to joke about it, you know, I, I don't think Red Sox fans may be the biggest Bobby V fan. But you know what? It doesn't matter because if you're a baseball fan, you've got to love Bobby V. Wow. First of all, the stories that he told are just great. I mean, he's just, he is a wonderful storyteller. I seriously, I could just listen to him go on and on and on. You could just mention a topic, a, a story in his life. Just great, great stories. Certainly had a great life. He's also the director of, uh, of sports uh, in, at Sacred Heart University in Connecticut. He has a restaurant in Stanford, Connecticut, I believe. He also has a, a batting cage facility. So he's uh, all over the place. You know, I wanted to talk about Japan. And there was Jeff, one day, hopefully, we could get Bobby V back on for another very special Valentine's Day. Yes. And I want everybody to know that our next episode is going to feature a man named Jeff Cornhouse, who actually is known as Pine Tar, as we talk about 1865 baseball rules and, and how the game was played back then. And Jeff, don't forget our friend Brett, Brett Topel. Make sure everybody goes and listens to and watches and does whatever his, with his show tonight. Hopefully everybody will really enjoy that. And now, Jeff, happy Valentine's Day. And let's get out of here by listening to our very special friends, Shel Krakowski and Dave Dresser, none other than the poet and the musician. We wish them a very happy Valentine's Day. We listen to Baseball Always Brings You Home. See you next time. Just clap.